Here at Medics Money, we get loads of questions from doctors working in Scotland. And today, we have some experts in who are going to answer some of those questions. So we're going to talk about the tax rates in Scotland and how they differ from the rest of the country. Also going to talk about differences in the pension, what GPs need to know, and also a bit about limited companies. Welcome to the Medics Money podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins, and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. As ever, this podcast is for entertainment only and does not represent any form of financial, legal or accounting advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. And I'm delighted to welcome a panel of experts today. So do you guys want to introduce yourselves to the Medics Money listeners and tell us why you're qualified to talk about this subject? Shall we start with Elaine? Hi, Tommy. Yes. Good morning, everyone. I'm Emmeline McHill. I'm a director in healthcare at Mazar and I look after a portfolio of medical practice clients, primarily GPs, but also consultants and locums. Um, so when I say I look after, we deal with accounts, tax returns, etc. Everything um, that they need our help for, we're there to help. Brilliant. Uh, Colin? Yeah, morning, Tommy. Colin Campbell. I'm a senior financial planning manager in the Glasgow office in Scotland. And similar to Elaine, I have a number of healthcare clients that I look after together with um, high net worth individuals, private clients and business owners providing them financial advice across all areas, um, particular pensions and investments. Um, when dealing with GPs and consultants, we do find ourselves getting a lot of queries around pension taxation and pension queries. So um, it's it's great to be involved with Medics Money on that front. Yeah, really glad to have you and done loads of stuff together. And a um, big webinar for the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh was the last time that I saw you, Colin. So yeah, that was really good. And Viha? Hi all, I'm Vihar Shah. I'm a financial planner at Mazars. I have come through the graduate trainee scheme. I've been with Mazars for five years and recently qualified financial planner. Again, same as Colin, dealing with a lot of clients, whether that's in the general public, high net worth individuals, but also in particular, dealing with a lot of clients in the healthcare sector, especially a lot of clients coming through biomedics money, Tommy, and just helping them with their queries. The range of clients is from young individuals all the way to those that are closer to retirement and dealing with their various queries, whether that's to do with pensions, protections, tax, investments. Brilliant. Well, I just want to say on behalf of the Medics Money podcast listeners, thank you for coming on today because we have got loads of questions that have been sent in by the listeners and we really appreciate your expertise with this. So should we start simple because... I'm aware that there's different tax rates on income tax in Scotland. So do you really pay more tax in Scotland? Unfortunately, yes, we do. Unless you're earning £15,000 or less, in which case you maybe pay about £5 less in Scotland. But if, for example, you're earning £50,000, you will pay tax of 8980 in Scotland, but only 7486 for the rest of the UK. Thus, you're paying almost £1,500 more just by being in Scotland. Another example is if you earn 100000 in Scotland, you're going to pay tax of 29500 But in the rest of the UK, it would be 27400 So again, a significant difference in the tax that you're paying. Ouch. Yeah. So that's income tax that we're talking about. 
because the rates are different in Scotland. Yes. Okay. Is it too detailed to go into why that is or? It's because we have differing rates in Scotland. For the rest of the UK, there is the straight 20%, the 40% and then the um, 45%. But in Scotland, you have a 19%, a 20%, a 21%. Then it jumps to 41% and 46%. So we're always paying 1% more um, than the rest of the UK. And that's just because of the devolved government and the tax raising powers that they have. Okay, good to get that one squared away. So the answer to that is yes, you do pay more tax in Scotland or income tax. Okay, next one. I have an NHS pension and I've moved from England to Scotland. Are there any implications of this? Uh, you know, obviously, that's for me. The first thing to mention here, Tommy, is that um, if you do have NHS pension rights that you've built up in England and Wales, uh, or even Northern Ireland for that matter, um, people they, they should apply for a transfer as soon as they join the NHS Scotland, Scotland scheme. Currently, although there's NH, although NHS transfers uh, can currently be made at any time up until normal, ret- normal retirement age, people should know um, that the arrangement is not always in place. So it's best to consider a transfer as soon as possible when moving between the schemes. A couple of other things to, to point out on that front, that if someone actually has continuous NHS service or is perhaps rejoining with a gap you know, of less than five years, so that's obviously someone moving from England to Scotland and is either continuing or returning to work, uh, and it's within the five years, they'll broadly receive the same benefits on transfer from the former NHS scheme. What actually happens in the mechanics of that is that the former scheme calculates the transfer value, and they send the transfer value um, and details of the payment to the SPPA, and from there the SPPA will then calculate the check the calculation and then put transfer details to the NHS Scotland scheme and advise the member um, of the, the input that has been, been completed. If the member then believes that there might be a discrepancy or maybe a discrepancy in those calculations, it's really down to them to then take that up with the previous NHS scheme. SPPA can only rely on the information that they've received. Another little bit to add there that if someone is rejoining the NHS Scotland scheme after a period of more than a period of five years and they've maybe moved north, then the benefits will be calculated on a different basis with a member being provided an estimate of what those benefits um, or what transfer benefits will be purchased in the new uh, the new scheme at that time. At that point, SPPA provide the individual with an estimate of the benefits that are being purchased. Uh, and what I would say Say to anyone with any pension transfers, but particularly something as complicated within the NHS scheme, is that at that point they may well choose to, to engage or ask the advice of an independent financial advisor just to check that, that everything is up to speed and, and in line with what we're maybe expecting. Another little added uh, part there to just to, to conclude is that if someone is moving north and transferring benefits, if they actually have a current added years contract, it is transferable. But it's it's transferable as long as they don't have a gap of 12 months or more between employments. They need to transfer to allow the contract to continue. So if they were moving north, didn't join the scheme, the the new new scheme in Scotland, their added years contract would would come to an end. So they do need to have continuous contracts to make sure it continues. And they should note that it should be completed timelessly, just to make sure that there are no arrears calculated or no arrears 
arise in, in the, the transfer. But as I said, in all of these situations, if people do need to seek some advice, you know, independent financial advice should always, always be sought. Yeah. Wow. There was so much information there. I just want to check that I've understood it correctly for the lay people out there. So when you move from England to Scotland, you transfer your pension to the Scottish system. And yes. you basically what you're saying is you should do that as soon as possible for the reasons that you outlined, especially that yes. added years thing is crucial. So if you left it more than one year, if you had an added years pension in the England and you left it more than one year gap, would you lose those added years or what? I believe so, as in, you know, as what it says on the yeah, okay, the information that yeah. we have from the website. If the you know, as long as you don't have a gap of twelve months or more between employment. Yeah, okay. And then just to clarify, if you transfer your English pension to Scotland and there's any errors in those English numbers because you haven't checked them, or I mean, errors happen all the time, right? Those errors would then be transferred across, would they? Is that well? That's yeah. The SPP will rely on the calculations that are completed by. The previous scheme, which will obviously go with English and Wales or even the Northern Ireland scheme, so SPP will rely on the calculations provided by the previous scheme. And the onus is on the individual to ensure that those calculations are correct and accurate. And if there are any discrepancies that should be taken up with the previous scheme. Yeah. And that's where specialist advisors like yourselves would be able to check that the calculations were correct and everything had gone through. It's something that we're able to do in conjunction with you know, the tax team here at High here at Mazars. It's not something we come across a huge amount, but generally when someone has one, you know, either in England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and then moves to Scotland, generally speaking, they will you know, they have transfer benefits, but they're never convinced when they check their benefits in the future that they're actually correct and have all been captured. So we are asked sometimes to help out in terms of gathering in information to run our eyes over everything. Okay, awesome. Well, I think that's going to be really useful to the Medix Money podcast listeners who ask that question. We get that question a lot. We also get the next question a lot, and that is, what is the impact of electing for scheme pays? Does it differ from scheme pays in England? Well, I suppose the first thing to maybe clarify at a high level is what actually scheme pays, what scheme pay means, because uh, there'll be people out there that may have heard it and not had to, to, to use the facility. So I think in basic terms, you know, just for the layman, um, Basically, scheme pays is an option you have um, whereby someone is presented with an Excel, not an Excel, an excess annual allowance. And effectively, what that means is that individuals in the UK, we all have a pension annual allowance, which is the maximum we can contribute to a pension in, the, in a given tax year. And if we exceed that allowance, then there is deemed to be an excess annual allowance position and there is a tax charge on that. And when paying that tax charge, it can be paid in, well, effectively from, from an NHS perspective in one of two ways, possibly three. And I can go into that then towards the end of the, the answer. Um, one way is to pay it on the tax return. And I'm sure Elaine will have seen that when completing tax returns for, for her clients. Uh, you can actually pay the tax through your tax return. The advantage of doing that is effectively you retain the excess contribution in the pension scheme and therefore will be accruing benefits on that and you've effectively tax charged. Disadvantage is paying the tax charge from savings, which may well be a burden to, to some individuals. So those who are not in a position to be able to pay that tax charge as an individual through their tax return, you then have the option of what they call scheme pays and effectively you can elect for your NHS pension to pay that tax charge on your behalf. And what effectively happens is a debt is created against your accrued pension at that point. 
and the tax is paid to the, to the HMRC at that point. Effectively, then what happens is, is it's a loan that has effectively been given. And like any loan, interest is charged over the period of time between the charge being paid and the member retiring or choosing to draw benefits. And it's at that point when the loan is repaid. So the actual charge plus interest is repaid at that point. At that point, what happens is the total amount owed, including the interest, is then, it's then converted to what they call a permanent reduction in their NHS pension. And they also use what they call actuarial factors, which are calculated out and uh, provided to the scheme by the scheme actuaries. So you pay the loan, including interest, and that loan is adjusted um, by actuarial factors to come up with, or not come up with, but to allow a, a deduction in pension to cover the cost of the scheme pays. The other thing here to mention is, and you maybe mentioned how does it differ from Scotland to England, broadly speaking, the principles are the same. Uh, one of the differences we have perhaps to mention is that in England they have the scape rate, which is the, the CPI plus currently 2.4%, which is the interest rate that's charged. In Scotland, we publish the actuarial factors, if you like. So we know what the actuarial factors are in Scotland, not just so clear on what the interest rate is, but down in England, we know what the interest rate is, but maybe not so clear on what the actuarial factors are. So broadly speaking, the principles are, are the same. I suppose a final point to mention is that there is a third option in terms of paying what, you, what, what we would deem as being the, the annual allowance charge. And that is if there, is, if there are any members who may have a defined contribution or a money purchase scheme that they have had from previous employments or ABCs or that, that type of thing, that it actually might be possible to pay the charge from that scheme, which again means you're not paying it out of your pocket, you're not impacting on your NHS benefits in any way, shape or form, you're actually using an additional pension scheme that you may have. We occasionally come across individuals who do have other money purchase schemes where that they may be willing, that scheme provider may be willing to pay the charge on their behalf that way as well. Awesome. Again, as we always say, seek advice. Absolutely, yeah. Worth reiterating that nothing about today is advice. It's for entertainment only and consult your own advisor to your own circumstances. Can I just ask one um, extra question about scheme pays? I don't know if I want to mention this because it is a really sore point, but in England in 1920, we have the annual allowance compensation scheme, which is like a one-off scheme pays where the government will pay your annual allowance tax bill. In Scotland, it doesn't exist. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we get that question all the time from Scottish doctors about the 1920 one-off compensation scheme, and it just doesn't exist. So you're just if you're in Scotland, you're just flat out of luck. Is that right? Unfortunately, yeah. Okay. Let's move on to another question that we get all the time, which is there's been loads of publicity about the McLeod and Sergeant judgment. And if this is the first time you're hearing those words, we have several podcasts on it, so check them out. But what do doctors need to do in relation to the McLeod and Sergeant judgment? At this moment in time, the answer is nothing. It, it, you know, it's not actually in legislation as yet. There are lots of, as you say there, Tommy, and I've seen them on Medics Money website, they're all over the NHS websites, be it Scotland or England. There are FAQs out there where it covers off a whole load of real technical questions. We are asked a lot about it. I, as I say to, to my clients as individuals, I would say to them, look, there's nothing you need to do now because we can't. Ultimately, what I do say is that basically 
fundamentally it's a good thing for all members, effectively, because no one will be worse off as a result of the judgment. They'll either be better off or in a neutral position you know, from where they may find themselves currently. So all in all, it's a good thing. Given that it's not in legislation yet, and it is still fairly new to everyone, everyone yet, they do have a lot of questions. However, we don't have any worked examples to go by. We've not actually sat down and worked through any examples of individuals coming to retirement, any individuals who sadly may have retired and passed on and be caught up in all of this. So there's a whole lot of information out there that I really, you could take a podcast up on all on its own, split it up into two or three parts. But effectively, do nothing. It's a positive for everyone and people will need advice about sticking close to your accountant, sticking close to your financial advisor. When the time comes to make a decision or there's more information on it, at that point, sit down with the professional and ensure that you understand your options and the impact that it'll have for the future. Yeah, perfect. Elaine, this might be for you because you mentioned that you work with lots of GPs. What are GPs worried about at the moment from a finance point of view, shall we say, because there's a lot of other stuff to worry about. But yeah, what are GPs saying to you? Well, the main concern that GPs are saying to us is having enough um, resource to meet patient demand. So it's sort of 50-50 split. We've got 50% of the mix worrying about resource to meet demand and 50% that concerned about NHS finance still being in place. But I think the patient demand one is the biggest issue. There's a shrinking number of partners in GP practices. And by example, a practice who might have operated with five GP partners a few years ago may only have two partners now and are really struggling to get locums. So that then leaves them in the position where, yes, they've got all the money that they would have had, but they're burning themselves out trying to meet patient demand. Now, it does vary region to region, but the supply of GPs in Scotland does feel really, really low and recruiting partners is a huge struggle at the moment. It just leads to not having enough GP resource to meet patient demand, but also succession planning issues. And one of the key points, maybe not being able to retire as early as partners would want to. And it also increases the possibility of mergers of practices, so practices coming together, in which case you then need to go to the health board and try and negotiate um, different income based on the differing streams from the practices. The other um, item I mentioned was in terms of NHS finance still being in place. And I think it's just the unknown as to what's coming in phase two of the contract. We've sat in phase one for a few years now, but COVID, as with everything, has just put a stop to more phase two discussions. So it's really just the unknown that's bothering people at the moment. Yeah, lots going on at the moment, as you say. All right. This is another one. I mean, all of these questions have been asked by multiple people. So I am a newly qualified locum. What do I need to be aware of? Okay, that's another one for me then. Thanks, Tommy. Sorry. Um, as That's okay. As a locum, the main thing you need to know is that you're considered to be self-employed. So you have to register with the um, HMRC and you have to pay your tax via self-assessment. So by that, I mean, maybe as you're qualifying, being paid a salary where the tax is deducted at source. If you're locuming, there's no tax taken off your income. You have sole responsibility to set aside enough money for your tax and pay your tax due when your um, tax return has been submitted. The most important thing I always say to newly qualified locums is to make sure you're setting aside sufficient funds to cover your tax. And I would advise setting aside 30 to 35% of all your earnings. So not just your locum earnings, if you're doing out of hours, 
it's key to make sure that you look at your um, cumulative earnings and make sure you're setting aside 30 to 35%. You'll also have to register with HMRC for self-assessment, as I've mentioned, and this has to be done by the 5th of October after the end of the tax year in which you became self-employed. So if you've just started as a locum in August 2021, you have to be registered with HMRC by no later than 5th of October 2022, and your first tax return and payment will be due to be um, submitted and paid by January 2023. You'll pay tax at two points in each tax year. So January, which consists of any balancing payment and your first payment on account towards next year's tax. And July, where you pay your second payment on account towards next year's The other thing you should be aware of is that you should be keeping a log of all income earned and also all receipts for any allowable expenses. And by expenses, I mean professional subscriptions, any professional equipment you might have bought, any professional courses, um, etc. And these records have to be kept for seven years after the end of the tax year. In terms of superannuation, there's a slight difference in Scotland from what happens with England with um, locum earnings. In Scotland, you pay your superannuation on a monthly basis to practitioner services and you need to complete locum forms A and B that allow you to do this. And these have to be completed for each practice that you locum for in order to declare your superannual income. If all you're doing is locum work, you don't then need to submit a year-end pensionable certificate, which I believe you do have to do in England. Wow, that was an amazing run through. So let me just clarify for the listeners. So we're talking about GP locums here, right, specifically in this example. And that is one thing that I think a lot of GPs don't understand is that the first tax bill is going to be a bit of a stinger because you're effectively paying the tax in advance and the 18 months previous. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. And that's really useful. So you're suggesting, say, 30 to 35% of your income to prepare for that. And I've seen lots of GP locums who haven't done that and then get a pretty big tax bill and a nasty surprise. So that was a brilliant run through of what GP locums need to think about. Thanks for that. I think it might be time for Elaine to have a rest. And Vihar and Colin, this next question is probably for you. Again, it's from a GP. So as a newly qualified GP with a mortgage and a student loan and high outgoings, is it still beneficial for me to join the pension scheme, given that I'm hearing of horrific tax liabilities in relation to the pension? Yeah, it's a common question that you could probably split into two. However, firstly, what I would say is that everyone individual circumstances are different. However, being new qualified, it's highly unlikely or newly qualified, it'd be very highly unlikely that they'd be caught by any horrific tax charges that early on in, the, in a career. Um, however, by you know making an early engagement with an accountant and or financial advisor, it's something that can be monitored and managed on, a, on an ongoing basis through keeping an eye on, on these things. In the main, I would suggest if, if it's affordable to join the scheme. I would focus on the positives by in saying that, you know, the positives in terms of any pension scheme offering tax efficiencies in terms of tax reliefs and, and tax efficient growth, et cetera, for, for future retirement savings. It's something we've mentioned in the past in various webinars that, you know, the NHS scheme is one of the best pension schemes in the UK. So, you know, if it's affordable for you to join it, then there's no reason why you not don't be put off by hearing stories of horrific tax charges we can monitor these and manage these and help people understand what it all means. What it would then bring me on to the, is to be a bit more important than I'm going to be getting out of that question is 
you know, someone who's fairly young with a, a mortgage student loan, perhaps young family. The advantages of being a member of the scheme and the scheme benefits that are offered in terms of death and service benefits, ill health benefits, dependent benefits, etc. Whilst these are you know, beneficial to have, it's a good opportunity to sit down and actually understand what these are and how they may, you know, how they could impact the wider family life. And it then opens up a conversation around a review of clients' individual circumstances around protection, so family income protection, actual income protection, critical illness covers, that type of thing. It's a real common question, but it opens up real meaningful conversations that we can have with individuals as, as financial advisors. Yeah, brilliant. I think there's lots of sort of bad news about the pension, but if you focus on the good news about the pension, as you said, Colin, it's, it's a very good scheme and it comes with those extra benefits that you mentioned, such as the death in service and the dependent benefits as well. So I've been as a newly qualified GP with very poor cash flow, but I did not leave the pension and I have never regretted not leaving the pension. So if you can stick with it, not advice, consult an advisor. I always like... Tommy, do you mind if I add something? Please do, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've found very heartening dealing with a lot of medics money referrals is just how many young individuals are approaching us and you know the queries that they come with. I'm talking to a lot of individuals in their early 20s, their mid-20s. Whilst they might be at a stage in their career with a few years of service with the NHS scheme where we might not necessarily engage to do any work with them, the fact that they are thinking about all these sorts of things about protection, whether that's income protection or the life cover for family, the fact that they're thinking about future pension tax charges and lifetime allowance, the fact that they are thinking about retirement planning and what that might look like is just so great to see. And as I said, whilst we might not necessarily engage to do any work at this stage, what it does mean is that we're on their radar. And it might be a 15, 20-minute call that we have with them at this stage, but it gives them reassurance and peace of mind that if in the future they have any queries or concerns, they know who they can turn to and uh, who they can discuss these matters with. So that's been really positive. Yeah, I think it's a really great point that you make that starting early in finances is never a bad idea because if you can get your ship in order early on in your career, it's just going to set you up and avoid the scramble pre-retirement where you're trying to dig out pension figures and work out what's what from you know pay slips that are 30 years old and you might not even have them. So I think that's a really good point that you make. And Things that like this podcast right now is helping those doctors to realize what the issues I'm sure they're listening to this now and have thought, oh, goodness, that applies to me. I ought to check that out. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, thanks for that, Vihar. Now, I always like to finish on a really easy, straightforward, simple question. Should I set up a limited company for my earnings? Easy one. <laughs> thanks for that, Tommy. And this is a question that we hear a lot. And the honest answer is really that it depends on your circumstances. There seems to be theory that if you have a limited company, you pay a lot less tax. And that can sometimes be the case, but I'll just explain further. So a key point to note with a limited company, it's only legal entity, meaning that any money held in the company is company money. And therefore, in order to take money out of the company, you either have to draw a dividend or a salary, which you're taxed on. So when you have a limited company, you pay corporation tax on all the earnings that that limited company makes. And currently, that's at a rate of 19%. You would then pay tax on anything that you draw out of the company. So you've got to add the cumulative tax together when you're comparing um, whether you are actually saving any tax. 
One thing that I would advise is the forthcoming national insurance and dividend tax rate changes means that the marginal benefits that the wear of having a limited company and drawing dividends has been eliminated. So going forward from 2022 onwards, there isn't going to be overly great a benefit of putting your earnings into a limited company and then drawing a dividend. But other things to be aware of when setting up a limited company is that because it's its own legal entity, there are filing requirements. So limited companies have to submit official accounts within nine months of the year end. These have to be submitted to Companies House and therefore they're held in the public domain, meaning that anyone can access that information. Um, another key point is by putting NHS income into a limited company, you're breaking the trail for pension in this income as there's no longer a direct contract with the NHS, so the income is no longer considered to be superannual. Now, that can have a benefit if, for instance, you're trying to split your income. If you're putting low income into a limited company, you can no longer pension it. But I would say the benefits that come from the pension, it's always far um, better to be putting your income into, paying, sorry, pension income into the pension scheme rather than avoiding it. Uh, amazing summary of what is a ridiculously complex subject. And I think a lot of doctors, as you say, assume that if they start a limited company, they're going to save a lot of tax. And what you're saying is that you might, but it depends on your specific financial circumstances. And since they're all different from us, from individual to individual, just because your friend at work who does the same job as you has a limited company, it doesn't mean that it's right for you. So yeah, I think it's one of our, I'm going to say bugbears because we see loads of doctors who start a limited company and assume that it's going to help them save tax. And if you crunch the numbers for a lot of them, it doesn't make sense. But for some of them, it does. So yeah, um, take advice, do your research. Wow. Um, that was a really amazing run through those questions. And that's going to be so useful to the podcast listeners who sent them in. So I hope that was useful to all of the listeners. Thank you so much, guys, for your time this morning, Vihar, Colin and Elaine. And we really look forward to having you back on the Medics Money podcast in due course.